Thanks, Linda. As we prepare to hear from the Word of God this morning, I invite you to join me in reading Scripture. Uh, we have two passages this morning. One is from Isaiah chapter 9, and the other is in uh, the New Testament from Luke chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles with you, um, turn to that with me, uh, or follow along on the screen, if you can see that behind me, hopefully. Uh, beginning in Isaiah chapter 9, the first two verses. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honour Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And then in Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 67, this is titled Zechariah's Song. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Warren, and thank you, Linda, for that powerful prayer. In case you haven't noticed, uh, behind me is what has been referred to by some here among us as the curtain of destiny. And in case you're wondering what's behind the curtain, you have to come tonight to find out. Come to our carol service this evening. Uh, the doors will open here at five o'clock. Uh, the program's going to start at six, and we're really excited uh, for you to join us as we kick off Easter, or Christmas, excuse me, uh, Christmas this year. Uh, I want to say a huge thank you to Joanna, our Minister of Community Life. Uh, and if you didn't get a chance to hear uh, the message she preached last Sunday, I encourage you to go back and have a listen. A powerful encouragement as we close the book in Amos and began to look towards Christmas. The theme of our Christmas series this year is that coming day. And the goal is to share in a sense of anticipation and hope that builds at this time of year. Anticipation is a word that carries multiple senses, actually. Uh, it's an idea that can mean looking forward, 
Some of you are anticipating some time off. I can tell by your eyes this morning that you're just keen and ready for a holiday. Uh, So anticipation can carry the sense of looking forward, um, an expectation of the good that is about to happen. This is the sense of anticipation that the angels bring to the birth of the Messiah. It's the sense of anticipation that the crowd had when they were wondering what sort of child John the Baptist might be. Anticipation can also carry a sense of being a precursor or a forerunner. In a technical sense, something is anticipated when someone or something acts as a forerunner, i.e. an event that comes or takes place prior to something that is expected to come later. In a technical sense, John the Baptist anticipates the ministry of Jesus. He goes before, he prepares Which leads to the third sense of anticipation I want to share with you this morning, and that is to be aware of something that will happen in order to be prepared, in order to prepare yourself. So, I can see your eyes are glazing over. The first sense of anticipation is we just, we're excited about it. I'm just looking forward to this thing happening. Can't wait to go on a holiday. Can't wait to get to the beach. Can't wait to open my Christmas presents, whatever that might be. There's a technical sense of anticipation wherein someone who comes before is doing something that is going to be picked up by the person coming after. And then that third sense of anticipation is to know something is coming so that you can be ready for it. As in our current state of anticipating Christ's coming again. So when we say that we've themed this series, That Coming Day, It's our way of bringing these ideas together. That coming day is a phrase that helps us remember the God who called forth light from darkness is the same God who kept his promise to redeem a people for himself. That coming day is a phrase that reminds us the God who became a man to dwell among us is the same God who promised to come again from heaven, this time bringing the fullness of his kingdom in in the creating of a new heavens and a new earth. So as we find ourselves in this Advent season, and Advent is a word that means arrival, in this season of arrival, that coming day is a phrase that is going to keep our hearts presently hopeful by looking back and by looking forward. We look back to a fledgling Israel, scattered and dis, excuse me, scattered and dissipated to hear the prophets echo a defiant message of deliverance amidst the deepest darkness. We look back to the traveling virgin, dispersed and disparaged, to rehearse the glories of the incarnation, to hear the voices of angels, the word of shepherds, to witness the bowing of wise men, and the fear of kings. But we also look forward to a king that is coming again. And so that's what we mean by this phrase, that coming day. So as we begin this series, we're looking at the coming light. But just to give you a sense of what's coming, we'll also be considering the coming deliverer, the morning star, the coming sun, and the coming shepherd. Shout out to Janelle Keys for these graphics, which are fire. 
Thanks, Janelle. But this morning we look at the coming light, the coming light. I wonder if you were struck dumb, I mean silent, for nine months, what would be the first thing you would say? Imagine with me, you lost your ability to speak right now. And for nine months, you couldn't utter a word. You would open your mouth, you would try to vocalize, but no sounds would come out. Your means of communication is taken from you. you you're, you're given a, a, a writing tablet. You don't even have those, those really cool technological things now which can make a, a vo- manufacture a voice for you. You literally cannot communicate anything. And after nine months, you are suddenly given the ability to speak again. What would come out of your mouth? I would love to think that I would have something profound to come out of my mouth. But knowing myself, it would probably be something like, can you believe what happened to me? It might be, I have this growing list of things that I need to inform you about. I have this pamphlet of wisdom that I'm ready to communicate to you. I have this catalog of suffering that I would like you to hear and rehearse with me. Those are probably things I would be tempted to say. Maybe you would be a little more noble and you would be tempted to tell your family and friends, I love you. Maybe you would want to communicate something deep and meaningful that you've been meditating on for a long time. But I wonder how many of us having been struck dumb by God, would allow the first words out of our mouth to be praise and glory to God. The big idea this morning is faith sees light in the darkness. Faith sees light in the darkness. That doesn't mean that the light isn't there. We're not saying faith imagines light. Faith manufactures light. Faith faith is a visualization of what light might look like. No, faith sees the light in the darkness. Our overview this morning, we're going to just follow this theme of the coming light through a few passages. Isaiah 7 and 8, we're going to talk about the deep darkness. Isaiah 9, 1 and 2 speaks of the coming light. And Zechariah, in fulfillment of that, utters the praise that is due with the rising dawn. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come before you sharing nothing of ourselves. Lord, we have nothing profound to contribute to this. All we can do is simply witness and testify to the goodness and the grace and the mercy that you have revealed. And so we pray that through your Holy Spirit, the light would indeed shine clearly for us today, that our hearts might be steadied in hope, that we might persevere in faith. 
We know this is only possible through the saving work of your Son who brought us into relationship with you and through the enabling power of your Holy Spirit, the same Spirit who inspired these words that we have before us today. And so it is in your Son's name that we ask for this grace. Amen. The deep darkness. We come to Isaiah chapter 7 and 8 and because most people don't read their Bibles anymore and most people are tr struggle to track the narrative, I say Isaiah 7 and 8 and to you that sounds like gobbledygook 4 and 6. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. What you do need to know is that the context of Isaiah 7 and 8 is a people that are on the verge of being invaded. It's a society on the brink of collapse. Oppressions knocking on the door. Enslavement is crouching just behind the fence. And so the king of the southern kingdom of Judah has watched as the Assyrian army has totally vacated the northern tribes, beginning with, beginning with places like Naphtali. And so we come into this prophecy reading these words. Just before we come to Isaiah 9, in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19, this is what God's word says. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they will have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged. And looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. And they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. This is the prophetic word of what's going to befall God's people. Without going into all the details, you catch a glimpse of it there. In this refusal to consult God in his revelation and how he has decreed and disclosed about himself. In rejecting that, the people are left in a position of consulting all sorts of evil spiritual forms. They go to the occult, they go to spiritualists. But ultimately, they curse their God, they curse their king, and they bend themselves in toward the earth. It's as if heaven's shutters have been closed. And they're only left with what they see on earth below. Some of you have been walking on this earth for a long time. And you're already over it. You've seen enough. Can you imagine what it would be like if your view of your life and your purpose in eternity was solely defined by the things of this earth? If all that was was what you see men and women doing to each other. The breaking of a, of, a, of a world, of a planet, of an ecosystem. If that's all that you saw, what would your existence be like? The Bible says it's darkness. It's distress. 
The people in the northern tribes have been invaded, have been exiled, have been taken away, have been dispersed and scattered. All the hopes of a society, the hopes of of power and privilege, all of that has been taken away. And instead, they are now oppressed, scattered, taken from their homes, their families ruined, their livelihoods ruined, living entirely at the mercy of other human beings. Does that sound bright and cheery to you? No. And so deluded in their mind that they, the moment they even think to look up at God, they cannot begin to comprehend anything good, but they only see a being they would want to curse. This is darkness. And the darkness means silence. We know from the book of Amos that, that the prophets would tell of a time that was coming of silence, a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. They wouldn't, people would crave to hear from God. They would love to know what he has promised, what he's had to say, what, what he might reveal. They would love to know that, but they can't hear it. It's, it's gone. They can't find it. It's like going to the cupboard and there's nothing there and going to the grocery stores and there's nothing there. There is literally no message from God. There's silence in the midst of this distress. And so when we come to verse 1 of chapter 9 and verse 2 of chapter 9 and the prophetic utterance of Isaiah, you need to note how he describes the darkness. Verse 1, he says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. What your NIV has translated as deep darkness is actually just a compound word. It's, It's death darkness. The writers have smashed those two words together, death, darkness. The people have been humbled. They have been crushed. And they're left in a state that is so dark, it's so pitch black that it, you can almost feel death. I wonder if you know what that's like. Have mercy on those who feel this darkness. God did not create us to live in this darkness. People do things when they're in the midst of this darkness because they simply cannot get away from the gloom. They cannot get the cloud to lift. They cannot cannot disperse the death darkness. But it is into this that the prophet says the light will come. Before we get there, I want you to take a moment and just appreciate, recall in your mind, think back, have I ever been in a pit like that? Have you ever been in a pit that dark? Maybe you're in it now. 
I know we know how to put on a face. I know we know how to, how, to, how to shower and clean ourselves up and get dressed and look nice and go through the motions. But right now, you and I, I want to know, have you been in that pit? Are you still there? Because what we are about to talk about now is hope. Hope that gets us out of that pit. And I encourage you, those who know what that's like, don't dismiss that. In the glories of knowing Jesus and the freedom that you have, don't forget what it was like to be in chains. Because you walk around in this world and you see people who are blind. Paul would write, he would say that the enemy has blinded the, mind, the eyes and blinded the minds of people. Their hearts are darkened. But by the grace of God, there is a coming light. It's a light that comes upon the land. It's a light that lifts the people, and it's a light to see God's glory. Again, verse 1 of 2, the prop, 1 and 2, the prophet is speaking. Nevertheless, what a wonderful word, nevertheless. That means that even though all this is true, even though that they're in the gloom, even though that they're in the pit, even though that they're cursing God and cursing their king, even though, even though they have shut themselves in, can't even look up, filled with rage, pressed down in distress. Nevertheless, nevertheless, it's a great word, isn't it? Nevertheless, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations. To be humbled was to be brought low. It was to, be, it was to be, be removed of any sort of significance and any sort of weight. But here God says that there is a day coming where he will add glory and he will add weight to these lands. Now, if you don't know much about the geography of Israel, bear with me just for 30 seconds. In the northern tribes, there was Naphtali and, and, and Zebulun. Naphtali was sort of on the border of the western side of the Sea of Galilee. Zebulun was a little bit further north of that. And then you had the other area, which was the other side of the Jordan. The point is, these were the remote tribes. If there were tribes of God's people that succumbed to paganism and idolatry, these were the first ones. This is where it started. These were not the leading tribes. These were not the people who were known for their faithfulness and fidelity to Yahweh. These are the people that gave up their Christianity quickly. These are the people that forsook God's law for a bowl of porridge. These are the people that were so preoccupied by what was going on around them that God simply became a thing or an idea and he ceased to be a being. These people fell like a house of cards when the enemy moved in. But God says he's gonna bring honor and he's gonna bring glory to those people. And they will not live in darkness anymore. And because we've read our Bibles, we've read the New Testament, we understand that it is in these areas that Jesus began his ministry. It is in these places where it all begins. So the light comes upon the land. You see, so many times we think that God's going to start with the strong. 
Well, God's going to start in the strong place and he's going to work it out. He's going to use the powerful people and he's going to use the people that have all the social capital and the financial capital and the relational capital and authority. He's going to use those people and that's how he's going to start his movement. But here God starts with the weak. He starts with this land of Naphtali and Zebulun, the place that people would say, you know what, nothing good's going to come out of there. God says, that's where the light's going to dawn. That's where you're going to see it. It's going to lift the people to see the glory of God. There will be faithful people in the land who will see the light. I want you to note, this is, it's going to sound a bit nerdy, but, but, but there's significance in this. Note the tense the tense, the past tense in which this is written, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Now, some commentators are so sort of flabbergasted by this, they say, well, actually, it's just, you know, we're going to invent this category, and it's really sometimes the prophets talk in the past, but they really just mean the future. So really, you should just read it as, you know, the people will see a great light and a light will dawn. But in reality, because God has spoken, the light is already there. God spoke in Genesis chapter 3 when he said to the serpent, I will put enmity, enmity between the seed of the woman and between your seed. And he will crush your head. All the way back in the Garden of Eden, from the very beginning of the fall, God had uttered a plan that he would restore. He would crush and undo the serpent's work. And whether it's Pharaoh or whether it's a, a, a pagan nation or whether it's unfaithful kings throughout the history of God's people in the Old Testament, you see God continuing to carry this promise forward, bringing it forward despite the attempts of Satan, despite the attempts of sinful humanity to thwart it, despite the utter failings and incapacity of humanity to achieve what God has intended. Despite all of this, the promise keeps Moving forward. The light is on. And Isaiah, talking to people in the pitch black of gloom, he says, we've seen a great light. Remember our big idea. Faith sees the light in the darkness. Note quickly here, the light is something to be observed by human eyes, but it is also something that is not manufactured by people. It's, it's something that dawns. It's something that God brings. Listen to what Alec Matyer had to say about this. He's been making the greatest hits lately. <laughs> he says this, he says, as always, we have to decide what reading of our experiences we're going to live by. 
The darkness and distress are real, but they are neither the only reality nor the fundamental reality. Think about that. We have to decide what reading of our experiences we're going to live by. Now, some people hear that and they say, oh, that's Christianity, just trying to sort of view everything through rose-colored glasses. This is you guys just trying to dress up everything and, and pretend there's no pain, pretend there's no suffering, pretend there's no poverty, pretend, the, you know, pretend, 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 pretend. And that version of Christianity, I, I just want to say it is offensive to the world and, and it's offensive, I think, to anyone with a sincere faith because it cuts the legs out from the reality of darkness that we live in. But, Machir is saying, we actually may have a choice. Just because it's dark, does that mean we don't have to, we don't get to have hope? Just because it's dark, does that mean we can't see? Just because it's dark, does that mean we have to succumb to gloom and to distress? Some of you right now need to hear this. He finishes by saying, in any given situation, we can either sink into despair or rise to faith and hope. Folks, the word of God, the promise of God is your beacon. It, it is that candle. It, it, it might seem dim and it might seem faint, but it shouldn't seem that way to us. I'll tell you why in a minute. If Isaiah, looking through time, can see the light of God's promise, then what on earth do we have when we turn to Luke chapter 1? We hear Zechariah's song and we see the rising dawn comes from heaven by God's mercy beyond our expectation. If you have your Bible, flip forward to Luke chapter 1. And I heard a great message this week uh, from Alistair Begg setting up the context for this. And I encourage you to go, if you listen to Truth For Life, you can go, go check it out. Uh, it's a great message. It's called, His Name Is John. <laughs> It'll give you good context for what I'm about to share with you. What we have in Luke chapter 1, verse 67 to 79 is the song of Zechariah. It's, it's a prophecy. It is... The man who was struck dumb for nine months finally gets a chance to speak as if he is in bodily form reliving the period of Israel's history of silence, of not hearing from God. The man was struck dumb in the moment of his unbelief. The angel appeared to him and said that even though he was advanced in age, even though he was very old, he was going to have a son. And he said, what's the proof? He didn't believe what the angel was revealing to him. And he said, the angel said, the proof is going to be that you're not going to be able to speak. Mouth closed. <laughs> well, he got his proof. <laughs> but the moment that he is given the opportunity, his first words, me, he writes on the tablet, his name is John. The moment of his faith 
His tongue is loosed, and through the Holy Spirit, now God is speaking again, and he sings this great song. It's a song that talks about God visiting his people. This is what they had hoped for. It's a song that talks about God remembering the promises that he made. It's a song that talks about God enabling his his people to serve him and to be in fellowship with him, to be in relationship with him. Can I tell you, all of this has been to bring you back into relationship with the living God. And then he comes to verses 76 to 79 and he picks up his child in his arms And he prophesies over the child. He's given this blessing to God. Then he prophesies over the child. And he says about John, you will be called a prophet of the Most High for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness. Have we heard this before? And in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Here he is picking up the motif from the prophet Isaiah as he looks at his child and the spirit is saying, this child is going to be the one who's going to anticipate the Messiah. In his life and in his ministry, he's going to make the way straight for him. Notice the light is described here not as a flickering candle, but it's described as a rising dawn. A rising sun. I don't know about you, but when I was, when I would go camping or when I would be in a dark place, sometimes they give out these little glow sticks. And you know how that works, right? They give you a little glow stick and you you shake it up and you crack it and then it, it puts off this kind of strange light. And you're like, ooh, wow, isn't that cool? Isn't that interesting? For some of us, we treat Jesus like he's one of those glow sticks. Well, Jesus, I'm just going to, I got to shake you up a little bit. I got to shake you up. And then, you know, you're broken so that we can have this light. And you're a bit different. You're a bit strange. I have no idea how you work. And... You're kind of fun to play with for a while. But the light eventually goes out. And I don't know about you, but the next day I'm always walking around picking up those things and like, where's the bin? Let's get rid of this thing. We don't need these glow sticks anymore. The good news this morning is Jesus is not one of those glow sticks. He is the rising sun. And so when when Zechariah is prophesying over his son to say, you're going to prepare the way for the Lord because the tender mercy of our God has caused the rising sun to come and shine on those living in darkness, what he's talking about is a totally new day. This is not having a little pocket of light to go in. It's not a candle. Jesus is not a candle. He's he's not... He's not that little light that stays on on your electronic devices, you know, that just sort of stays on all night. And it's like, well, if it's dark enough, I guess it'll give me some light. No, it's totally trans, Jesus is totally transformational. It's a totally new day. 
Do you forget what it was like as a kid? Maybe you never had this experience, but I sure did. Sometimes you wake up in the middle of the night and you just feel the dark around you. And your mind goes into all sorts of weird places. You begin thinking and imagining things and they feel so real. I was convinced there were monsters in the closet. But then you wake up the next day, the sun comes out, and you totally forget about it. This moment in time is that first light. As Zechariah is holding John the Baptist, he sees the first light. And he says, this is a new day. And it's by God's mercy. Just like you didn't tell the sun to come up this morning, guess what? You're not the one who turns on the light. You're not the one who gets yourself out of the dark. You're not the one who has to scramble up tall enough, who has to smack the sticks together, rub them hard enough to try to get some sort of spark to happen. That's not you. It is by the tender mercies of our God. This is about Jesus from first to last. And it's beyond expectation. I want to show you uh, a wonderful synopsis from Joel Green. He says, this song presents images not to specify with precision what form God's purpose will take, but rather to project what is its magnitude, its immeasurability, its irreducible quality. In other words, he's saying, if you read the song of Zechariah and you, and, and you try to say, okay, I'm going to get out my little blueprint and my drafting board, and I'm going to draw a picture of the Messiah based on what, what, John, what Zechariah has said. Well, you're going to get kind of a weird picture because it's going to look like the Exodus. It's going to look like nature. It's going to look like promises. It's, it's, it's not really clear, but the point is not the precision. The point is the magnitude. The point is the glory of God visiting his creation, his people. It goes beyond, it extends beyond the reach of what had been hoped for. People in the dark would have been grateful for a glow stick. The people, you know, the, the people would have been loving for just one of those little headlights. I think about that group of boys that was lost in the caves in Thailand and what they wouldn't have given for just, just a headlamp. A headlamp. But Jesus is not a headlamp. He's the rising sun. He signals a new day. First light has already come. And that coming day, we will see this rising dawn. Listen to the words of John from Revelation chapter 1 as he gets his vision of Jesus the Messiah. John writes, in his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, 
shining in all its brilliance. John got a vision of Jesus. And when he tried to look at his face, he said, it's like looking at the sun. So bright. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. So what do we do until the day dawns? That day. The New Testament is full of instruction to us. And one way to encapsulate so much of that instruction is to say, walk in the light. So what does it mean to walk in the light? First of all, you need to wake up. People who don't know Jesus, they are still sleeping. They have not woken up yet. The sun's out. The light is shining, but their eyes are closed. They're still in darkness. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul would say, you quote Isaiah again, he'd say, wake up, O sleeper, rise for the light of Christ shines on you. You can't walk in the light if you're still asleep, if you haven't woken up. If you have not opened your eyes to the light of Christ, if you're still asleep in your sin and in your spiritual darkness, the second thing is you need to receive the light of God's truth by faith. I invite you to look at John chapter 3, verse 19 to 21. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. John says the light's on. <laughs> The day's dawn. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. You see, you can wake up, but then you can go back to sleep. You can wake up and you can see, whoa, that's a really bright light, and you can grab your pillow, roll onto your stomach, put it over your face, and pretend like it's still dark outside. So to walk in the light, you need to not just wake up, but you need to receive the light. John says people don't like knowing that their deeds are evil, and they love darkness. This is the insidiousness of sin. Is that people, at the end of the day, that's what they want. That's what I want. It's what you want, apart from God. Everyone who does evil hates the light. It will not and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. I've never been much of a sleeper, but I went through this phase in university where life was getting very overwhelming, and I decided if I didn't get out of bed, maybe life would just pass by. Until one day at 8 a.m., I got a call from my professor. I very groggily said, hello. 
He said, hi, Jonathan. It's Professor so-and-so. It was my class on political science research methods. It was a core required course held in the big lecture theater. He said, Jonathan, the class and I were just wondering if you were going to join us today. And I heard the room erupt in laughter. You see, you can't just go back to sleep. People who've seen the light of Christ and tried to go back to sleep, they become very miserable people. And what, have, what they do is they have to plunge themselves into greater and greater darkness in order to sustain the illusion that the light never came out, that the sun never rose. And so they plunge further and further into the darkness. So step one, wake up. Step two, receive the light. Step three, this is beautiful. When you come into the light, you're cleansed of your sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. Ooh. And isn't this the tragedy of it all? Is that people roll over and try to go back to sleep and they don't realize that Christ is there to attend to them. That Jesus is there to heal and to forgive and to sustain. Fourthly, being cleansed of our sin, we need to live with God in the light that we've received. Walk in the truth. Again, so much of the New Testament can be summarized by that. Live with God in light of the truth that you've received. Sometimes we want to live with God, but we don't want to live in light of the truth. Sometimes we try to live in light of the truth, but we try to do it independent of living with God. You can't do that. It's meant to be the same. You live with God. You live in fellowship with Him, and you walk in His truth. And that's how it works. Verse 5, excuse me, not verse 5, point 5. Learn to please the Lord and not your sinful nature. What a mercy this is. The New Testament tells us that we need to learn to please the Lord. That means when you first see the light of Christ and you receive his, his grace, God doesn't expect you to have everything figured out. He understands that you need to learn to please him. Next, leave the darkness behind and expose its deeds. Don't be participant. Don't participate in it. And testify to Jesus Christ as Lord, the Son of God. This is John the Baptist, his ministry. He would testify that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus would call him the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because with his own eyes, he was able to identify the Savior. He was, he was able to identify the light. He said, I'm not the light, but I know who the light is. He's that guy right over there. So Peter and Andrew, see you later. Go follow that guy. Go follow the light. And to summarize something Pastor Stephen shared in his sermon in Scripture this week, the reason why we are greater than John the Baptist is because we now live in the light of day. And so we can actually, like John the Baptist, say, there's the light. Follow him. He is where you are supposed to walk in.
that coming day, we will see our Savior in all of his brilliance. And what for the prophets must have appeared like a flickering candle in the deep darkness will give way to the sun in all its radiant brightness and brilliance. As you look upon Christ face to face, that is what is coming. The kingdom has begun. It's already inaugurated. Are we living in the light? I encourage you to think today. Maybe some of you find yourselves crawling back towards that pit that you climbed out of. And you're there, and you're just on the edge of the pit, and you're just looking in at the pit of the darkness. And you're overwhelmed because you're like, it's too hard up here, it's too hard out of the pit. And you just gaze longingly back into the pit. Don't jump back in. Don't jump in. Whatever that fear or that condemnation is that's sending you back into that pit, you don't need to fear that because Jesus Christ cleanses you from all sin and he will lead you in truth, in fellowship with your Father, or in the words of Zechariah, in the path of peace. Let's pray. Father, would we walk that path? May you open our eyes that we would see Jesus. Lord, we're sorry for how often we've just turned over and tried to go back to sleep, thinking that you're not coming, thinking that you're not real. Lord, sometimes the light's very bright for us. So Lord, like you did with John, would you touch us today? Would you lay your hand upon us when we can't look upon your face so that we would know your tender mercy? And Lord, save us from that impulse to climb back into the pit. Well, thank you for it in Jesus' name, amen.